If you would, turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 2, we'll be in verses 13 through 23 this morning as we finish the Advent series. It feels like it has flown by. Um, and, and every year, I think it feels like it goes faster and faster, it seems. Um, and so I don't know if you've had that same sensation. It's just, it's, it seems, it just boggles my mind that next week is Christmas. We're already there. The end of the year is upon us. And it just seems like it has just flown right by, flown through our hands. Um, and, um, and so I, I hope that we're able to retain some of the things that we've heard and ha- that doesn't get lost in the flow of time. Um, so just to kind of review what we've learned so far, remember from the genealogy how we talked about genealogies ought not be skipped. They're actually a great opportunity for you to grow in Bible study, for you to grow in your own uh, understanding of the fullness of God's plan. Genealogies are a great place to see uh, the word made flesh in a sense. And so with Christ's genealogy, uniquely, we get to see that exact process. And remember from that first half, we saw that there were four women um, who were Gentiles, and three of which had these really kind of interesting stories as, as, uh, as they did things that um, were against the law, in essence, and that we would say makes them unclean. And yet the Lord chose to include them and bring the Davidic king through their wombs, meaning that he loves the broken, that he includes those whom we would think should have no right. And remember in that second half, we saw that the kings of this world, both good and bad, cannot bring to pass anything more than what the sovereign Lord has determined can happen. And that's a comfort to us because I think sometimes we are misled into thinking if we just had somebody good enough at the helm, all, everything would get better. As if, I don't know if you understand how government works, but one guy ain't going to change it. One guy can make a pretty significant difference maybe, but he's not going to change it all. And so we have to recognize that there's something, a greater hope than even the best of leaders that we could see at the helm. Amen? And that's good news to us because it means that good and bad will not change ultimately God's redemptive plan. And then we saw in that last part of the genealogy a bunch of people who are, we have no idea who they are. They're utterly meaningless in history as far as we're concerned. There's nothing that we can find out about them because no one else lists them. They're not in the Bible, at least 10 of the 13. They're not in the Bible. We don't know anything about them. And it just tells us that God uses ordinary means to bring about great grace. And remember that 14th generation is sitting here right now. You are the continuation of the redemptive story. We are, as the church, to continue something. We are to do what Christ came to do. And so often we forget, don't we? We have such a short memory. We we make church about a thousand other things instead of actually emphasizing the one thing. We, we do. We, we make our, our Facebook pages. We make our lives about thousands of other things that are utterly inconsequential. We fight for all the wrong things instead of being adamant about the one thing that he came to tell us to do, which is what? Glorify him and in so doing, advance the gospel or the great commission, if you will. And we'll hear more about that in January. And so we, we lose our way when we forget what we were created to be and do. And remember how um, we talked about the virgin conception and how if God could speak this world into being from nothing, then why would it be 
impossible for him to speak a child into being in a virgin's womb. Especially if the, pur- the purpose of that is to inaugurate a new creation. What a beautiful idea. And remember how Joseph conducted himself, one who loved both God's law and his neighbor, his nearest neighbor, who was Mary. And remember how he didn't want to hurt her, but he knew that something was wrong. And so he was wanting to quietly put her away. And the angel came to him and said, don't fear this, Joseph. Mary, Mary. For in her womb is the maker of the universe and the redeemer of all things. Fear not. And he obeyed. And remember, in his obedience, he named him Jesus. And Jesus means something, doesn't it? It means Yahweh saves. That Yahweh has come to save his people. And there was another name that was associated that we need not forget, which is Emmanuel, which means God with us. The whole purpose for Jesus coming is not so that God could be with us. He doesn't make it possible. That's really important uh, distinction. Jesus just didn't make it possible for God to be with us. He was, is, and will be God with us because he is God. He is Emmanuel. And then we learned about these men who came from the east to, if we were to lay bets on who had a right to come and worship the king, it wouldn't be these guys. They were magi, they were soothsayers, seers, men who worshiped the stars, men who thought they could interpret dreams. Remember, they got it wrong in Daniel and it was costly. And these guys came and said, hey, we've seen a star And we know that the king of the Jews has been born today. We just need to find where he is. And the Lord used something they could understand to draw them to his word. Remember, they broke open the word when they got to to Jerusalem because everybody was freaked out and Herod was angry and Jerusalem was upset because things were about to change. The devil they knew was going to be usurped and it would be costly. They understood that. That's why they were troubled. So they broke open the word and they said, hey, Micah 5.2, 2 Samuel 5.2, that tells us this guy was born in Bethlehem. And so this entourage of Magi and other folks went and they worshiped. They fell down as soon as they saw him. They actually rejoiced before they even got there because they knew the Lord was leading them. They get there and they, they just went crazy. They got excited and broke open their treasures and gave of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they worshiped this baby king. And the Lord warned them to go back a different way because he loved them too. Remember, the Lord is saving to the uttermost. And that's important for us to remember because oftentimes I think, especially at your family gatherings, look around and ask yourself, who in this room, or this room even, have you treated as unable to be redeemed, as unworthy of your affection, unworthy of your friendship, unworthy of the glory of the Lord that resides in you? It's a tough question, isn't it? It is for me too. It is for me too. And so as we approach this last section, I hope that you will keep all of that in mind, that Advent truly is about the unsavable being saved, those who seem to be too far gone to be brought very close in. And that should comfort us and tell us that the sovereignty of the Lord is firmly at work, and that should be good news to us. I mean, think about it. Where, where do you place your hope? 
We've asked this question before, and I think it's worth always revisiting because it's a kind of a fluid thing, isn't it? As things happen in our lives, as thing, things happen in the world, we are, that gets shaken, doesn't it? So, so where do you place your hope given our current cultural and political circumstances? If it is in man of any shape, form, or fashion, your idol will fall. He will not be able to provide for you what it is you truly need, and he will not be able to sustain the hope that you have. The only hope that you have is in Christ and Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, in the sovereignty of the Lord. If he holds it not together, what hope do you think you really have to change anything? Sometimes I, I just want to ask for those who uh, have a certain very, very strong opinions about things, uh, and I'm a man of ideas, so don't get me wrong here, but, but have such strong opinions about things, I just want to stop and sometimes say to them, what is it that you're actually doing? What is it that you're actually affecting here with all of your time and your energy and your frustration? Where could your energy be better served and used? How about displaying the glory of the Lord, something that has an internal impact, not something that will be forgotten in history as fast as it comes out? And being a man of ideas, I'm guilty of that sometimes, and I don't like that any more than you did because it presses back on me pretty firmly. So listen to what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the good doctor, about this. He says, the incarnation is the supreme example of fulfilled prophecy. The supreme example of God's faithfulness to his promises. And this is surely most comforting, especially as we consider it in the setting of the world in which we find ourselves. If you don't know who D. Martin Lloyd-Jones is or was, he was an English pastor during World War II. There's a great story about D. Martin Lloyd-Jones where he is praying as the Germans are bombing London. And he's standing in the pulpit and he's praying and you can hear stuff going off and stuff shaking and, and, and actually sediment and dust are raining down. You know what he did? He kept praying. He didn't, he, he didn't alter the worship service one iota. And that was a, an incredible testimony to the people that he, he feared not. There was nowhere to run. If the Germans were going to destroy London, him running was not going to save it. He knew the best thing he could do was continue to worship the one that could keep the bombs from falling where they did and didn't. So he saying those words has a little more weight to them, I think, because of that reality. And so we too find ourselves in a setting, in a world that is very, very uncertain in many respects. Everything that we think that we know seems to be kind of coming unraveled, it seems, in certain places. And everything that we thought was valuable is, seems to be losing its value. And if you're a parent and you have teenagers, you're wondering if you're ever going to be sane again, if there's any way out of this, if there's any hope at all. And I don't say that lightly. I say that as one who has walked that valley. And so, so we too find ourselves asking, where do we place our hope? What hope do we have in any of this in this fallen world? 
So this morning, what I want us to get from verses 13 through 23 in Matthew chapter two is that God uses interesting detours, costly circumstances, and lowly and humble sources from unexpected places to redeem and draw us to him. Let's look at the text, verses 13 through 15, chapter two. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Now that reference there is Hosea 11.1. 1, and, and this is a, a very pregnant image for Jesus to be taken into Egypt and then for him to come back out should bring to mind what major event for us? The Exodus. Well, that's kind of interesting given the new creation that was the virgin conception, that there would be a new Exodus coming, a new Moses, one who would lead the people in redemption. See, this is what's happening. This geography of grace had already been set thousands of years in advance. It doesn't matter what the kings are deciding to do. It's not as if Herod is doing something that was unexpected. It's fully expected. In fact, it was planned for because God knows what, what evil and dark men do whenever they are confronted with the option of redemption. He knows what the principalities and powers of darkness will do whenever the true king comes. You see, what's interesting about Herod, and it's always been interesting to me, is how seriously he actually takes all this without bending his knee in the right way. He believes all of it to be true. Except in his arrogance, he thinks he can affect it. He thinks he can change it. And as I said last week, so do you and I. You and I think that we can usurp the sovereignty of God with the things that we do. You and I think that we don't need to be near as obedient as what God's word says. Just to, should we take John 15 serious? I mean, does he really throw the fruitless branches into the fire? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Grace is not cheap. Redemption is not cheap. And we're gonna see that in just a moment. So the Lord had already in his sovereignty displayed through Hosea's prophesying that was, if you read Hosea 11, that context, you probably walk away going, I, I don't see how that points all the way there, but Matthew picks up on it and it does beautifully, especially think about the whole book of Hosea. What did you have in the beginning of the book of Hosea except a man who was called to love his wife though she had played the absolute adulteress again and again and again? Praise God that by chapter 11, he says, my son will come out of Egypt, signaling that there will be a new exodus. This is not the way it will always be. And so here we have, yet again, the fulfillment of a prophecy that is tied to the faithfulness and the promises of the Lord. And it also signals to us that that new creation that was inaugurated in that virgin womb 
is leading us to a new exodus, that there will be one who will lead us in redemption, breaking the bonds of the tyranny of sin and death forever. That we will not be left to wander in the wilderness of the between the now and the not yet forever. There will come a last advent when we will all be brought home and all things will be made new. Listen to what John Calvin says of this passage. He says, this wonderful method of preserving the Son of God under the cross teaches us that they act improperly who prescribe to God a fixed plan of action. Let me read that again because that needs to sink into your soul a bit. And you need to actually think about some ways in which you, you think you can prescribe things to God because we are under the pale, and, and, and it's in the air we breathe, this idea of moral therapeutic deism. That, that God is some sort of grandfatherly figure that we have built some sort of Tower of Babel to and we access him as we please instead of him accessing us and our world as he pleases. See, this is where the rubber hits the road, doesn't it? This is where this begins to kind of stick deep into our own hearts and it should wound us so that we can heal. Because we are this, we, we think that we can prescribe to God a fixed plan of action for our lives. Lest you think I don't have a plank firmly planted in my own eye, I have done this. I am not where I thought I would be. This is not what I prescribed in any sense of the word. When I grew up thinking that I was going to be a lawyer, thinking that I would be a district attorney that would absolutely eviscerate and bring justice by my own hand. And that I would, I would be well known for that, that I would be one of the most well-liked, meanest people on the planet. <laughs> Some of that's still true, but not all of it. And so, so I had a different prescription. And how many times have I, have I gone to God, not with a seeking of his way, but a prescribing of my own in the form of a prayer? And then get angry with him when the prescription that I wrote, he doesn't fill. So listen again at what Calvin says. He says, this wonderful method of preserving the son of God under the cross teaches us that they act improperly, who prescribe to God a fixed plan of action. Let us permit him to advance our salvation by a diversity of methods. And let us not refuse to be humbled that he may more abundantly display his glory. Above all, let us never avoid the cross by which the Son of God himself was trained from his earliest infancy. This flight into Egypt is a part of the foolishness of the cross, but it surpasses all the wisdom of the world that he may appear at his own time as the savior of Judea. He is compelled to flee from it and nourished by Egypt from which nothing but what was destructive to the church of God has ever proceeded. Who would not have regarded with amazement such an unexpected work of God? See, how often have we read this and be like, oh, yeah, he goes into Egypt, whatever. Fine. But yet there's, there's so much being said here. There's so much being pointed to because it makes absolutely no sense. If you want to protect the Christ child, you send him into Egypt? 
That doesn't make any sense unless you are sovereign and can protect him there. And you're trying to say something to your people, you're trying to signal to your people the new Moses, the new Exodus has already begun. Praise God. Has the Lord ever taken you back to a place that you thought you had moved on from and would never return again? Has he ever taken you back around a way that you thought, this doesn't matter, this is crazy? Well, he certainly has for me. And I remember in particular one time we had moved to Macon and we went through the uh, horrific process, which uh, unorthodox and untheologically, I think hell is going to be visiting churches for eternity. I'm not going to die on that hill. But we visited churches for, it seemed like an eternity. It was about a year and it was awful. Uh, for a number of reasons, and uh, some of it was us. Um, and so finally landed at a church, and, um, and uh, that pastor asked me to try to form a relationship with the rescue mission in Macon. And uh, when he asked me, I said, no, I'm not going back that way. I've already been to Egypt, and I ain't going back no more. And so I said, well, I'll go, and I'll try to set something up for everybody else to go. How about that? So I went and I sat down with a lady and she had this fiery red hair that was utterly unnatural, but, uh, but matched her personality. And uh, she listened to me, her name was Julie. And so she listened to me for about five or 10 minutes and she said, well, when do you want to preach? And I was like, no, 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 no. That's not, that's, I think you misunderstood me. I am here as a representative. I am merely uh, the messenger. I'm not here to do anything. She said, no, 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 I've heard, I'm hearing your story. You, you need to preach. And you may say, well, see, that's why you shouldn't listen to women. That's why we have what we have in terms of being Presbyterians. That offside, I listened to her, and I think it was part of the spirit, and, and it was the most amazing thing I think I've ever done. And it, nothing has affected me more than my 10 years at the rescue mission. I still, I still am fed by it and am, am haunted by it even. Um, and, and so the Lord took me back down some dark paths just this weekend with my daughter. He's taken me down some dark paths, things that I thought were done on my side, not, to, not her, but me. And the reason he's taken me is not to rub my face in it, but to say, son, you've got to heal. There's a healing that you must, you must Go through this new creation so that you can be on the new exodus, so that you can taste of the fullness of redemption. But again, places I would never choose to go except I've been forced. I've been forced. And many of you have experienced the same thing. And what we've got to remember is that the Lord is good and in him taking us down those dark places and into those valleys and into those places. Again, consider Egypt. What good ever came out of Egypt for the people of God? Nothing. War, death, destruction, slavery. What good came from any of my dark past but war, death, destruction, and slavery? And yet it is not finished because the Lord wants to use all that for his glory. I don't understand it, but I trust it, or at least I'm trying to. Let's turn back to the text, what I think is one of the harder texts, <coughs> just because of what it means. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, 
or the Magi, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region. Two years and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the Magi. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, not to minimize this in any way, shape, or form, but the number given the population of Bethlehem was somewhere in the 20 to 50 range on the children. Only reason I bring that up is any of you who do any reading, one of the first things that people attack is that if this were true, why is it not recorded somewhere else in history? Well, the reason is because the number was so small as far as history is concerned, not as far as God is concerned. 20 to 50 children murdered is a very large number for a small town. And you got to imagine, and some of you may even know the ache of this, how horrible that would have been. And so what this tells us in, in, in kind of two parts, one is that redemption is not cheap. It was the sovereign Lord who decided for Jesus and Joseph and Mary to go to Egypt, but that unleashed the fury of Herod. Now, what you gotta know so that you don't hang it on the Lord, Herod was going to slaughter those children anyway. You understand? It, it, it wasn't, he was going to try to ensure that the Christ child was killed. And part of doing it was to exterminate any and everybody in that class or category. So it's not as if them going to Egypt meant that, oh, now Herod killed these children as a means of getting back at them. That's not what this text is saying. He was trying because of what the wise men did. He wasn't responding to Jesus going to Egypt. He was trying to do what he had intended to do anyway. He was going to use the wise men to kill Christ himself. But then he had to go to his own measure and just kill everybody in that category. And so there was a great cost to those families in Bethlehem. And Herod was willing to make them suffer to try to get what he wanted. And so this, in essence, fulfills Jeremiah 31, at least in part, which signals to us the rest of it. That the loss of the children would not be a permanent end to redemption. That it would not be, even be a permanent end to those children. That the Lord would redeem and that he would make right what Herod had made wrong. What's interesting about this is Frederick Dale Bruner's comments, New Testament scholar, he said, the theological lesson in this is this, those who begin by hating the child, the Christ child, end by hurting children. Hating revelation leads to hurting people. If people will be ungodly, they will be inhumane. Herod is the gospel's earliest evidence of this. Do we not see this in history? Is history not fraught with this? Those who hate the revelation of God, those who hate the Christ child, ultimately make the poorest of the poor to suffer. Always the most, the most vulnerable will suffer because of political wranglings. 
We are standing in the midst of this as hip deep as we possibly can on a range of subjects. I am utterly blown away by how the argument and the argumentation has gone in terms of what constitutes life in order to be able to justify a multi-billion dollar industry. I am utterly, I, I, I would love to sit down with some of these people and just see what their eyes do as they, they give these arguments as to why it's perfectly okay to take and do a third trimester abortion or any abortion of any kind given the pain that it inflicts upon that child and do it so callously and then justify the end and the means because of what can then be done in the sake of research as if there's no other way. I am, I am stunned at how we treat and think about the poor. I am stunned at how we think and treat the issue of immigration. We have bought into the false binary. Does everybody know what that means? That there's only two sides to this and you only talk about it one of two ways. What a crock of nonsense. The God who spoke into being the world out of nothing, who can say to a virgin womb, there is a child in there. There is more than the false binary. The creative way in which we can engage this as the church is infinite. It's eternal. Woe be unto us when we grow so uncreative on these things. And we let fear rule the day or lack of wisdom rule the day. We should be of all, given our knowledge of Scripture and the gospel, the most creative in engaging these issues instead of just regurgitating nonsense that is unbiblical and unwise and uncaring and unloving of our neighbor. Woe be unto us. And so we must be careful because as we, even if passively, drift from Revelation, we too become inhumane. In our solutions, in our offerings, we too become less of the gospel, even though we claim to be. It's astonishing to me. <laughs> There's so many passages, two to three hundred, about engaging the fragile, engaging the vulnerable, and yet we look away. We make it about so many other things. We do some sort of dance to make the gospel about something other than redeeming and restoring and allowing to flourish. Let's turn back to the text. As we recognize there is a cost. Redemption was costly to those in Bethlehem. It's been costly to those who have sought to ensure that the gospel would get to us, the prophets who have lost their lives, the apostles who've lost their lives, the martyrs through the centuries, and Christ most of all. You gotta understand redemption is not free in the truest sense of the word. No, you can do nothing to earn it, but it has been earned for you at great cost. Verses 19 through 23 say this. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. 
And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth. And that was spoken by the prophets that it might be fulfilled that he shall be called a Nazarene. So a couple of things here. Um, we see that again, Joseph is being led by the sovereignty of the Lord through dreams. Now don't get excited about that because that, that's not for everybody to get that. Um, but it is another way in which the Lord sometimes uses and speaks. And this is a specific redemptive moment in history, not something that we can extrapolate, right? Because I had a dream last night that was pretty interesting and it terrified me. Josh went to a wedding, right, in, in Clemson and played. And, and I, in the dream, he got back late. And so he really wasn't prepared for this. And so he decided he was going to play by himself. And it turned into this weird kind of cabaret, just very odd. And, and you guys were very disturbed and were complaining. And people were leaving. And I was trying to get you to stop. And I was trying to get Josh to shut up. And nothing, could, <laughs> nothing was working. Well, praise God, that didn't come true. I wasn't supposed to drive to another city and go to church somewhere else to avoid all that. So dreams are tricky. So don't just, just, you know, if you think you have a dream that the Lord is speaking to you, you know what you always ought to do? Go take it to wise counsel and let them help walk you through with scripture and see if it is in fact of the Lord or Bangkok cabin, which you ate the night before. So... But the Lord is leading, again, this geography of grace. He calls him out. And notice that, that Joseph was fearful of Herod's son, but it was the Lord who told him where to go. He did not go to Nazareth of his own accord. That tells you that though he was fearful, he still would have gone. But because the Lord said go somewhere else, he went to Nazareth. And it says that it fulfills this prophecy. Now, if you check into this, there is no prophecy in the Old Testament that says that Jesus will be a Nazarene. Now, does that mean we throw our Bibles in the trash and go find another book? No. What it does tell us is that there's something, there's a theme here being brought to the surface. Now, remember what we know of Nazareth from John 1:46, when Philip, uh, when Philip says, can anything good come from Nazareth? When he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is hears Nathaniel has, has brought him to him, and, and he says, can anything good come from there? What does that tell you is the prevailing opinion in the first century of the city of Nazareth? Not good. Uh, that, that nothing good would come from Now, but what does that tell us about, well, why would God take Jesus and call him to a city of no account that people didn't think much of, that would, that would by association, think not much of him? Remember what happens later in his ministry when Jesus goes back to Nazareth, what happens? They, a huge revival breaks out, right? No. They reject him. And remember his words. He says, a prophet is not understood even in his own country. It breaks his heart that his own people reject him outright. So what this is telling us is it is signaling to us the humiliation of Christ. If you would, turn in your Bible to Isaiah 53. I think this is a, a text that, that tells us that Jesus probably ought to come from a place like Nazareth. 
Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What better place for Jesus, the suffering servant, the Isaiah 53 servant to come from than Nazareth? A place of no account that would not cause him to be looked on in any way, shape, or form or thought well of. What better birthplace, what better origin than Nazareth? So we see that in that, it was fulfilled that Jesus would be a Nazarene. Listen to what Mark E. Ross says of this passage. He's a New Testament scholar at Erskine College. He says, though he was born the king of Israel, heir to David's throne, worthy of the worship from all the nations and God with us, Jesus, indeed a Nazarene for our sake. He came among us in lowliness and humility to lead us in a new exodus out of our bondage to sin and death into the glorious liberty of the children of God, wiping away every tear from our eyes. What good can come from Nazareth? Jesus, the suffering servant who, who takes away the sin of the world, who heals what could not be healed under any other circumstance, and praise God. So what do we, what do we see here? That yet again, God in his sovereignty takes, takes an unexpected path. So I ask you, have you ever been blessed by an unexpected source? And if you have, how has this affected you? And how does it help you to relate to the lowly and the humble? Instead of always looking past and always assuming what people can grant you, instead recognizing the God who is sovereign, who can use any method and mean, meaning you can be blessed from any direction. Meaning the places that you think that can't grant you anything good, no, great glory and redemption can come from those exact places. The places maybe that you have even come to fear the most. See, this has happened to me time and again. I, um, I uh, used to eat at fast food restaurants, still do. Still do, it's quite evident. And one of the things that the Lord used to do, and I don't, I don't know if maybe he was trying to drive me out of eating at fast food restaurants with this or uh, something more. He had something more to say to me. Um, I used to have these things called fast food epiphanies. And so I would go into this fast food restaurant and, and I, would, I would notice something or someone that would have a profound impact on me that let me know that Emmanuel with us, that God uses the things that we would overlook and look past a thousand times over to be a blessing to us. 
And there was one morning in particular that I'd gone to Chick-fil-A. And uh, there was a gentleman there who, um, whose, whose skin uh, was incredibly rough. Um, I don't even know exactly how to describe it. It was almost, uh, it was, he just had all these bumps and growths on his face. He was by himself, and his teeth also didn't quite fit in his mouth, and they kind of came out in multiple directions. And his eyes didn't stare straight ahead. They kind of went in two different directions. And, um, and he was eating by himself, and food was kind of falling out of his mouth. And, and as I looked on him, I, I thought, who loves him? Who assuages his loneliness and sorrow? And the Lord flipped it back and even used this man because the man looked up at me and he smiled. A blessing. An acknowledgement of my own humanity. And the Lord said, who loves you? Who assuages your sorrow? I came home and I cried like a daggum baby and Susan was trying to blow dry her hair and she's like, what is wrong with you? Have you, have you eaten fast food again? <laughs> so... <laughs> But what it taught me is to look in the unexpected places and not always assume that I am the purveyor, that I am the messenger, that I am the glory. No, that's not true. There's so many times that we need to bear witness to those thin places that we need for the glory of the Lord to shine through in unexpected ways. Instead of us always trying to predetermine who can bless and love and, and be a, a comfort to us, recognizing that the Lord uses all things and to open ourselves up much, much further with much, much wider arms than we do. Instead of making such a small and narrow and fearful and idle-laden, secure existence that is draining the life from us. This is the beauty of Advent, that the unsettling king and kingdom has come. We too are just as troubled as the people in Jerusalem because we know it means things have to change. We can't stay who we are. See, to become in union with Christ means that you must bear fruit. And if you don't, you're not in union with Christ. And that needs to shake us to the core. And you may say, Pastor, who do you think you are saying that's not me? It's actually John 15. You ought to read it because I don't want you to go on thinking you are something that you are not, and then you come to the painful and awful reality that is in Matthew 7 when he says, depart from me. I never knew you. I don't care what you think you've done. So what do we gain from this this morning? Matthew 2, 13 through 23 teaches us that God takes us on some interesting detours in our justification and sanctification. And we need to embrace that and enjoy that. And instead of kicking against the goads always, maybe take the ride and make it a little easier. Secondly, there is a cost to redemption that we should not forget. And we're going to see that in the table this morning. Third, God uses lowly and humble sources from unexpected places to bring us to him. God used a, an African-American woman that I worked with named Gwen who didn't have all her theology correct would call into work sometimes when she probably shouldn't have. But she loved me in a way that nobody else did. She loved me enough to tell me the truth even when I tried to be as awful to her as I possibly could. And I never, if you'd asked me to write my own story of redemption, I, that it wouldn't have been the way I wrote it. 
but I'm thankful for her. And she knows that I am a jewel in her crown. Her efforts did not end. She bore fruit. And I am thankful for that. As we come to this table this morning, this is the table that is filled with fruit. It is a table that actually nourishes us and allows us to bear fruit. Fruit in ways that you can't do and be nourished by any other thing. This is a table of great cost as well, isn't it? This is a table that sometimes I think we take too lightly. I don't want to turn this into a funeral procession because I do think it's a celebration. But I think that oftentimes we don't celebrate as much as we should because we don't know the gravity of it. You know, you always celebrate more when you recognize how far you really have come. Some of us just don't think we've come all that far. We thought we were pretty good to start with and all, all Jesus has done is make us a little bit better. Thank you very much. I'm glad Joe Cole's here. I miss him when he's not here. And so, so we have this, this costly table, this, this Christ child who came and was, was, was formed, essentially spoken to being in the womb of a virgin and was taken this incredible, crazy geography of grace route through Egypt and down into, into Nazareth and who was not thought much of and who was not meant to be thought much of in and of himself, according to Isaiah 53. And yet, and yet he was the one who was chosen, the firstborn son, so that we could become sons and daughters of the Most High God, adopted into his family because of his work, because of the brokenness of his body and the shedding of his blood. And he thought that that was such an important thing for us that he instituted a sacrament, a, 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 a visible word so that we would never forget something that we were to do in perpetuity until he comes back. So this table not only points back to the first advent, it also points forward to the last advent. And we eat of this table recognizing that this communion this morning is one table closer to the return of Christ. This is one more communion closer to the better meal, which is the marriage supper of the lamb, where there will be the finest of wines and the richest of meats. Remember, they save the good stuff for the last. That's how Jesus does it. And so while this is, in some ways, for something so grand, seems so small. A little bit of bread. Some of you have asked, can we make those chunks bigger? Some of you have said, if you make them bigger, we're going to need more to drink. Uh, but it's, it's such a it's, a, it's almost in essence a pittance, isn't it, compared to what it represents. It, it doesn't even come close, but it's this ordinary means of grace that signals to us exactly the way the sovereign Lord works, that he uses all things, even small things, even things that don't make sense to us, to bless us and to nourish us. So this is why on that last night, that last Passover for him, first Lord's Supper for the people of God, he said, he said, and he took the bread, this common element, and he held it up to him and he said, listen, this, this is my body and it's broken for you. And what he meant in all that was that he was going to be crushed under the weight of their sin, our sin, the sin of all the children of God, 
and that he would also exhaust the fullness of God's wrath on our behalf. There is nothing left for us to be on trial for. And you say, wait a minute, Cameron, in the Bible it says there's going to be a judgment. And then we're going to be judged based on our works. Yes, you will. And that work is going to be whether or not you're in Christ or you're out. And whether or not it is Christ's works that have been imputed to you, making you righteous. And so this broken bread represents exactly that. 